We, uh, we're going to be looking at 1 John uh, chapter 4. And the last time I spoke in Steadfast, last, towards the end of last year, I had uh, done a message out of 1 John chapter 4 where we talked about what defines a Christian. And it was about love. Love is what defines a Christian. And we looked at verses 7 to 12 that last time. This, this morning, starting with verse 13, I just want to read these verses for you. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. That love uh, that we know from God was initiated by, by God. And it's a comforting thing to know that God loves us. And we have to ask ourselves as believers, well, what, what does that mean? And how can I be assured have assurance of my faith, that I am his and he is mine. Uh, many years ago, when I was in high school, uh, I used to go to, uh, it was called Youth for Christ. It's not the Youth for Christ International, but it was a local Youth for Christ in the Kansas City area. And I had a close friend there that I went, went to high school with, and he had come to a Youth for Christ rally, as what they used to call it. And he walked forward one night, and he was radically saved. And he was on fire for the Lord. He would, in high school, go out and just witness to everybody, have his Bible walking around the hallways, even times of prayer in the hallways. Some time went on after we had graduated high school, and I lost touch with uh, Brian. There's another Brian. Uh, And I heard many years later that... He had walked away, walked away completely from the faith. And this was a friend that I, I looked up to and over several years, and, and I was just flabbergasted as to what had happened. How could this be? And I found that he had uh, gone and traveled the world and uh, maybe in some social, uh, helping people with like social issues, uh, poverty, um, just disease and those types of things. And he saw all the suffering that went on in the world. And suddenly, his whole world changed, and he rejected everything that he had 
supposedly accepted. And, you know, that started me thinking, you know, what do I believe? And how do I know that I really belong to Christ? And, and, and I'm a true believer. And so I think this passage will show us how do we know we can have assurance of, of our faith. And First John uh, really lays out for us how you can know you have eternal life. And we want to see the basis and the benefits of assurance here. And what we're going to do is we're going to see three examples of the basis of our assurance and then two benefits of our assurance. John Newton, he's uh, a hymn writer, and he wrote Amazing Grace. He has talked about the assurance of faith and what that means to a believer. He said this, God loves to give his children the gift of the full assurance of faith. That's from Hebrews 10.22. It is a precious thing, a source of deep peace and consolation, and he wants us to have it. But like most things in the Christian life, assurance is something that is cultivated and grows deeper and stronger over time. It is a gift that God gives to us gradually through frequent testing. And that was one way that uh, John Newton looked at the assurance of of faith. So what we're going to see here in this section of Scripture is it's more of a... uh, less of an exhortation, but more of an assurance, an affirmation of the assurance that we have in Christ. And the first basis of our assurance is in verse 13. He says, By this we know we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Uh, What is it that we know? Uh, It's pointing to the rest of this verse. And the word know means to gain knowledge, by means of experience. And what was the experience that he's referring to? Well, they had an experience of seeing the Spirit at work in their lives, that they loved one another. And how did they do that? You know, maybe it had to do with someone uh, going and visiting someone in in great need. And we do this ourselves, visiting someone who, who needs us. Or providing meals Maybe somebody is in a financial situation and they, they need help with food or, or even finances. Uh, praying for one another in a time of need, just as we did today for Pastor Brian and Anita and their kids. Uh, having patience with one another. Forgiving one another. There's a myriad of ways that we love and we demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is in us. And that's something that the world uh, can't do. Apart from Christ, there might be uh, times you can put on a show, as my my friend back in high school did. Um, It wasn't uh, something that was real in the end. Um, And it goes on to say, we abide in him and he in us. Um, What we have here is a mutual indwelling or a personal relationship with God. And really, it's pointing to an intimacy that we can have with God. We can have an intimate relationship with our Lord. He loves us as a father loves his children. Far different from the false gods that of the, the pagans where God is angry and he's always going to judge them and you don't approach him. Our God is approachable and he's given us of his spirit. 
Every believer has been given the Holy Spirit by God. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And that's in Romans 8, verse 9. The Holy Spirit is is a person. He's not an influence, though he has influence in our lives when we're filled with his Spirit. He's a person. He is given and received as a complete person. He's not given partially to us. Um, in John 3:34, it says, "He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. There's no limits to the Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit to us fully, completely, the complete person. You can't get more of the Spirit, but the Spirit can have more of you. And that's a part of being filled with the Spirit. And we see you know, people today that I've got to get more of the Spirit. And even in some of these supposed revivals that are going on, that's what they're seeking to do to have experiences, and I just need more of the Spirit to be successful in my Christian walk. But we've already been given the Spirit. And again, are we being completely filled with the Spirit, and how do we quench that Spirit? The gift of the Holy Spirit is the complete person, so that the fruit of the Spirit are those things that are of Him and from Him, and which should be manifest in our lives. Because he has given of of a spirit means there is impact in our lives. And the result is love. And we see that in this, this passage. The exercise of love is the natural outflow of the possession by God's spirit. And, you know, just think about the opposite of, of this, uh, demon, say demon possession. What would you see the natural outflow of that to be? Chaos, hate, anger, out of control you know, the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. But as believers in Christ, God has given us His Spirit. We have the ability to be under control of His Spirit. And when we say of His Spirit, we are saying each child of God has the Holy Spirit. The love which we manifest is the outcome of that gift. John 3.8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't see the wind, but you see its effects. And we've been seeing that lately with the storms that have been coming through. We can hear the sound of it, and we can see what it's done. Uh, Recently, uh, we went on a trip to Idaho back a year or two ago for a cross-country meet in when we were there in Idaho driving around, we began to uh, see some homes on, on the side of the road where trees were blown over, roofs were ripped off, barns were blown down, and we thought, oh, you know, it must have been like a tornado came through here. But as we kept driving, we continued to see all of this damage over a wide swath of area, and then come to find out there had been a, just an unpredictable windstorm that had swept through several months earlier and destroyed just a massive amount of homes and businesses. 
and it was quite unexpected. We weren't there to see the wind or when it was happening, but we saw the effects. And that's what needs to take place spiritually in the lives of a believer. When the Holy Spirit indwells us, we're going to see the effects. So what is the basis of our assurance of a relationship with God? It's the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. The gift of God is proof of our fellowship with God. Which brings us to the second example. The second example is that we have the apostles' testimony of Christ. And we see that in verses 14 to 15. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And that's Scripture. We have this testimony. How important is an eyewitness? Uh, you know, if an event happens, who do you go to to verify what happened during that time? Well, you go to the eyewitnesses. And for any kind of event, that, that's so important. You know, what viewpoint or memory is the most important? It's going to be those who were there. And what better eyewitnesses to have than the apostles and those that were their associates to have witnessed the ministry of Jesus? and to give us the testimony that's written down here for us. They, uh, they were told by our Lord that when I'm gone, when I die and I rise again, these events that have taken place, I'm going to supernaturally bring those memories back to you so you can write them down. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, and this is another basis for our assurance. So... Let's look at some of these specific words here in verse 14. And the word seen, it's an interesting word, and it means a careful, studied, past contemplation or examination that has continuing present results, even up to to this day. Uh, And to testify that, it's to testify of someone or something, similar to Acts 5, 29 to 32, which says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death, by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom he has given to those who obey him. Again, they were witnesses of these things. So how do we have the assurance of the mutual indwelling with God? That is, we abide in Him and He in us. It comes from the Holy Spirit through the witness of Scripture concerning Christ and His saving work. John 15, 26-27, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth. Who proceeds from the Father? He will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So all of this is coming from Scripture, from the apostles' testimony. So it goes on in verse 14. It says that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So is he saving everybody? He's the Savior of the world. What does that mean, that he's the Savior of the world? 
God the Father is the one who sent Christ on a specific mission, which was to come down to earth in human flesh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that has results that continue down to this very day as well. He has sent, um, and this is something that continues. In verses 13 and 14, we have the activity. The Father sent the Son, and He has given us His Spirit because it is by the Spirit that we recognize the truth that the Father sent the Son. The evidence that we have received the Spirit is seen in our exercising the same self-giving and sacrificing love as the one we acknowledge as the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Think about this one concerning the Apostle John. Uh, Young John, Apostle John, and his brother James, they wanted to call down fire from heaven many times against the Samaritans because, you know, they weren't uh, following, they're they're Gentiles, you know, outside of the Jewish, Jewish heritage. But, As an old man, the Apostle John records in his gospel, Gospel John, from Samaritan lips, he's quoting, quote, we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world, John 4.42. So what does it mean that Christ is described as the Savior of the world? Well, he's the only one sufficient to be our Savior, Sinful, lost humanity needs a true Savior. And there's only one that can answer that call. And that's what it's speaking of. Now look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. So what, what did false prophets do? You know, They would not confess that Jesus is the Son of God. They would say, uh, you know, Jesus was just a man. He was just a good teacher. He did some good things. Um, but no, he's not. He wasn't God. And the, the point that's being rejected is that God in human flesh, God came in human flesh. And against the backdrop of these false prophets, they refused to confess Jesus as the Son of God. This confession that John mentions is not ongoing or in reference to a future confession, John is talking about a past, decisive, public profession. Um, This was a confession produced by the Holy Spirit. And that word confessing conveys the thought not so much as a moment in time, you know, doing it like right now, but as decisiveness. It's a decision that I've made. I'm, I'm confessing and living out the fact that Jesus is Lord, He is my Savior. And this is something that the Gnostics, the Gnostic teachers of the time during the writing of 1 John, they, they were in error, they were false teachers. And in 2 John 7, it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. They believed that the material world was evil, but the spiritual was good. So how could God embody uh, and come in flesh? Because that's evil. That's not possible in their thinking. But they were, they were false teachers. So why does a true believer confess faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Well, 
It's because of the Scriptures. The Scriptures teaches us that by the Holy Spirit, and this is what produces the confession of faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So a public confession is born of an inner persuasion, you know, what we've read on the pages of Scripture and by the Holy Spirit. John is talking about the single basic confession of faith that makes one a Christian, that the man Jesus is indeed the Son of God. I heard recently uh, on the radio, uh, some of you may have heard of Dennis Prager, and he's a, a Orthodox Jew, and he um, was in a debate with an evangelical Christian. And in that debate, and it was just a, a not like a very angry kind of debate, just discussing the differences between Christianity and Judaism. And in that debate, uh, the evangelical Christian said, well, is it possible that Jesus was the Messiah? And Dennis Prager says, yes, it, it was possible that Jesus was the Messiah. But he says, know this, the difference is when you say Jesus was God, that's where we part ways. And that's what happened with the Gnostics and many others that reject the deity of Christ. And that's the difference between a true believer and someone who does not believe. So true faith in Jesus Christ, we say true because it must be true and not false, and not a false view of Jesus. Jesus is more than a good man, a good teacher, a miracle worker. He is God and is the Savior of all those that would place their faith upon him and him alone for salvation. And it continues in verse 15, abides in him and he in God. And again, we said earlier, that's an intimate relationship that's going on, just a unique relationship that we can be close to God and have fellowship with him. Uh, there is no closer communion or relationship than that what is, is expressed here. God abides in him and he in God. And no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Abides, that word abides, is in the present tense. And it marks this twofold relationship that is a present and progressive reality. So think about that. It's, it's what is happening in my Christian walk right now, and it's helping me to progress in my spiritual growth. And, it, and again, our confidence builds in our assurance. So the third example now, the basis of our assurance, is that we have an active love. And we see that in verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides, abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. We have come to know and have believed. Again, the, the we that here, it's in the emphatic position in the Greek, which means it's pointing to the apostles and the eyewitnesses when it talks about you know, the we here. We have come to know. And the nature of the, the verbs here and, and in this context in verse 15 before points to all true Christians and is not limited to the apostles and the eyewitnesses. Because he, he, he says, we have come to know and believe. And it goes to all those who would believe on, on Christ. Knowledge and faith go hand in hand, spiritually speaking. If you have faith, 
you had knowledge of that faith beforehand. You had to know it uh, beforehand. You can't have true faith without the knowledge of the truth. To know speaks of understanding of spiritual truth, but believe describes an aspect of confidence that you have in and conviction concerning that which is known. Spiritual perception leads to heartfelt conviction. Uh, The commentator Burdick said that. The love that is eternally in God and was historically manifested in Christ is come to fruition, John Stott. Not only have we come to know and believe, but as it relates to the love which God has for us there in verse 16. Literally, uh, I think in the LSB, I saw it says, in us. God's love is not just a love for us, but a love that possesses and lives in us and flows through us to others. John 17, 25 to 26. So what God has done for us is the expression of his love in sending his only son. But what he has done for us means far more. His love has been poured into us, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and from us flows out to others. That's what we talked about earlier, doing the one another's. And then we come to a popular phrase in verse 16 that everybody wants to throw out when you're in some kind of a disagreement or you can't get along. God is love, you know. God is love. So do what I want to do. But what does that mean? God is love. God in his character of self-giving for the ultimate good of those he loves is the true definition of love. And this is the foundation of it all. And it's not always what we think we need. It's what he knows we need. And it goes on and says, And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. What is it that proves that God is living in us and that we are living in him? Well, it's because we consistently dwell in love as a practice. And those who dwell in love are dwelling in God, and God is habitually dwelling in them. And we're not talking about perfection, but we're saying as a practice in our life, we, we would be characterized as being one who loves, not one who holds grudges all the time or just can't get along with anybody ever. So when we live in love, we do not make God abide in us. It proves, it makes visible that God lives in us. Again, when we live in love, we do not make God abide in us. We're not making God do anything. It proves, it makes visible that God lives in us. Why do we have this assurance that we have an intimate relationship with God? It's the Holy Spirit in us and evidenced by our sacrificial love. Here's how we could flesh it out. Number one, the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. Secondly, who uses God's word concerning Christ as Savior. Third, to lead us to confess him as the Son of God. Fourth, in turn, we are compelled by faith to live out the love of God in us. And fifth, assurance comes from spirit-produced faith in Jesus as our Savior. And sixth, which leads to a life of sacrificial love. And what if we just boiled it down to 
two tests, you know, something a little that summarizes it a little bit less. How do we know that God abides in us? Two tests. Number one, faith in the truth. And secondly, love in action. I mean, that would be something that would be so simple just to think about. Faith in the truth. There is such a thing as truth. You know, people today say there is, you know, what is truth? Kind of echoes of Pilate. You know, what, what is truth? Jesus is truth. You know, look to the cross. Jesus is the truth. So the basis of our assurance is the Holy Spirit that's given to us. Secondly, the apostles' testimony of Christ, the scriptures. And third, an active uh, love, which comes from our faith in God. Next, what are our benefits of our assurance? And we're going to see two, two benefits of our assurance. Um, when children are younger and as they get older and they want to ride a bike, uh, you put them on that bike and they, of course, have training wheels at first. And then eventually you get those training wheels off and you're running beside them and they're pedaling and you let go. And after a few times of falling down, skin knees, maybe hitting the head on, on a car going, that's parked. Um, we had that happen one time. Well, it wasn't Brooke. But, so. uh, after those falls and those incidents take place, all of a sudden they get it and they're riding up. Oh, hey, I'm riding. You know, I'm going and losing track of where I'm at, you know, and got to turn now. So, but they build confidence, you know, over time. And it's that way for a lot of things that, that we can do in life. Um, and it's good to have confidence just in the physical realm. But what about the spiritual realm? Verse 17, by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. So the first benefit is confidence in the day of judgment. So by this, love is perfected with us. Now, this calls our attention to the previous verses, and we can summarize their contents like this, the previous verses. Uh, first, the possession of the Holy Spirit is the assurance that we dwell in God and God in us. Secondly, the fact that we confess that Jesus is the Son of God is an evidence that God dwells in us and we in God. And third, the fact that we dwell in love, God is love, that's what he's known for, is the result of our dwelling in God and God in us. And so verse 17, everyone that is born of God confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and dwells in love. So love is perfected, and some versions say with us uh, or for us. I think the New King James says among us. And the LSB says, in us. I think I like that one the best. And it means in company with, um, in its companionship. Since we do love one another, it is now evident that God's love has reached its goal in us. Which explains, by this, love is perfected with us. Love for my brother is evidence that I'm born again. It is evidence that I am in him and he is in me. It's a confirmation I am one of God's children and gives me confidence in the day of judgment. So what is the day of judgment that we're talking about here? I mean, we have two options. It could be the judgment 
seat of Christ, the, the Bema seat it's called? Or is it the great white throne judgment uh, when in the end uh, the unrighteous are judged? Well, it's not referring to the great, the, uh, great white throne judgment, the final judgment, because every believer is going to escape that judgment. The, simple, uh, the reason is simple. There is no such judgment for believers. John 5.24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So what's going to happen to believers? Our lives will be assessed at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, and 2 Corinthians 5.10 point to that. But even during that occasion, solemn occasion, a believer can have confidence that God will approve the quality of his life because of his love. The believer, while in this world, becomes like him, like Christ. The believer who at times, at times, can be unloving and not act like his Lord can anticipate rebuke or loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But if we have the moral character of Christ and love one another, then we can be sure that at the judgment seat of Christ we will have the confidence before him and not shame. First uh, John 2.28 uh, talks about that. So it's not the great white throne of judgment. Revelation 20 verse 15 points this out, that it's not the great white throne judgment. No child of God will appear before that judgment throne. The wicked appear there and are cast into the lake of fire. And Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. In Romans 8.1. So to summarize, there's three parts to verse 17. First, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. In other words, we have a present boldness in our lives, and it's present tense because we're looking at it now, but also knowing what comes in the future. And it's in connection with the day of judging. As he is, so are we in the world. This is the reason for our confidence. With the Apostle John, the grounds of this assurance are ethical, not emotional. They're objective, not subjective, plain and clear or tangible, not microscopic and elusive. Uh, you know, that's why I'm skepti- skeptical. Many times uh, I'll see these little pamphlets about a new idea about Christianity, and it's like super technical, and it's got all these different things that you have to consider. But the gospel is clear. It's simple to understand for the believer by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't, it's not a complicated thing. But it takes a supernatural work of God in your life. Love is perfected in us. That verb perfected shows that a work or a process brought to a full or final issue. And this is the perfecting of his love, God's love, with us. It's like a treaty or a transaction, really. But it's all from God to us. So the love, then, 
God's love, is perfected with us, and the perfecting of this love with us is bound up with our having boldness in the day of judgment. In other words, we are going to be confident before Him. It is God's love so shared by Him with us as to constitute a love relationship or love fellowship between Him and us. This is what gives us our boldness in the prospect of the day of judgment. So how do we know we're born of God? When we love our brothers and sisters, because the love of God has come to us and is in us, and it's reached its goal in us. We have sure evidence that we are born of God. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. That's in uh, chapter 3, verse 14. Here, John, he takes up the remaining part of John chapter 5, verse 24, shall not come into condemnation. This assurance gives us the confidence as we see the future, the certainty of the day of judgment that it's going to come. To live in love is to live in God, and this results in complete confidence. Goes on and says, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Uh, you know, what is, what is he talking about there? Well, he could be talking about uh, possibly an appeal to be, be like Jesus. It could refer to his eternal purity, love, righteousness, and per- perfect fellowship with the Father. Or secondly, it could refer to his incarnation, that this would be an appeal to his example in the flesh, how Jesus lived his life in the flesh. Or third, I think in this context, seems best to see it as just as Jesus abides in the love of the Father, Remember, he had a love for his Father to do his will. John 15.10, an abiding that already marked his earthly existence and gave him confidence before God in the face of temptation, trial, and death. So in this world, we also may abide in the Father's love and share in that same confidence. So How do we have this confidence? It flows from that intimate relationship, that love that we have with God. Instead of fear, there will be an experience of boldness or openness towards Him because of the solid evidence of a living, personal relationship with Him. And again, we're not talking about perfection, but we're talking about our character and the fact that when we do sin, We go to him and we ask for forgiveness and he forgives us and it's a humbleness before him. The assurance of a believer is an assurance of Christ and his work on our behalf. It is confidence in the promises of Christ and the power of Christ. You hear that clearly. It's all Christ. It's all God. And our confidence is in him. 1 John 2.28, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So the first benefit is our confidence. The second benefit we see in verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. So freedom from fear. So we could be really general here and say, 
oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm not going to fear anything. That's not what he's talking about here. But what is he talking about? It, this particular love casts out fear whenever it arises. It's perfect. It's complete or mature love. This word perfect appears only here in John's writings and describes a love that has reached its end or its intended goal. No believer's love has ever been so perfect as entirely to banish fear, but every believer experiences that as his love increases, his fear diminishes towards punishment. Fear is expelled by love, and love is prevented by fear from being perfected. That must be because of the impossibility of those two existing uh, together. Um, One gets in the way of the other. Because of the love of God for us, there is no place for fear. God will not let those who have been born of him, the children of God, quake with fear at the thought of judgment day. We're not going to be judged in the end. Once assured that we are God's beloved children, we cease to be afraid of him. It is evident, therefore, that he that fears is not made perfect in love. Uh, John Stott said that. And again, that's as a, a pattern of life. Fear involves punishment. Uh, the noun here, punishment, occurs only here and in Matthew twenty-five forty-six, where Jesus speaks of everlasting punishment. But it was common in, in secular Greek. And its root significance was that of pruning or checking the growth of trees. And it came to denote the process of correcting or punishing. The fear in view here simply springs from a consciousness that punishment is deserved. This is the future punishment which all the wicked children of the devil must sooner or later suffer because of their, this is the key point, unforgiven sins. That's what they fear. They know down deep that judgment is coming. But for the believer, I'm covered in Christ by him. Even though I'm not perfect, I sin. But in him, I am covered and I will escape judgment. There is an implication here with the statement John uses that shows it's not only future punishment, but current punishment that is related to current torture or torment. And such fear is destructive to inner peace and mars the consciousness of God's love. So bottom line is, if you are giving in to fear, that's going to hinder your relationship with Christ. And the way that we overcome that is recognizing I'm filled, I'm indwelt by God's Spirit, I have His Word to help me grow in my confidence and in my assurance, I'm not going to be judged. What is the opposite side of confidence? Obviously, fear. If we really abide in the Father's love, it follows that we will be without fear. Love and fear are incompatible. Whatever happens to us in this life cannot nullify the power of His love nor separate us from it. If we experience fear in any portion of our life, to that extent we deny God's love and fail to trust Him. 
So the benefits of our assurance is confidence and freedom from fear. And this brings us to what really matters about love and assurance. Verse 19, just key verse here, we love because he first loved us. John now deals with the results of redeeming love. This amazing love of God in Christ is what stirs the heart of the believer. The love is wide in its scope. We love. There is no stated object because it's not limited to our love for God alone. Here John begins with his most important truth. Love is never to be thought of as a natural experience of the natural man. This is the divine love, agape love. This Love, John is talking about, begins with the Father. Love was manifested in and through the Son and now characterizes the life of the children of God. The love with which we love is not our own. We don't create it, nor do we have the power to express it in and of ourselves. It is always either God's love or Jesus' love in us, but we do abide in the Father. Therefore, his love, this love, does not or does become our own. We love without any expressed object. This is a statement of fact, not a command. This love is the evidence of our having been born of God. We love. We don't fear. All true God-like love, agape love, is a response to his loving us, and a reflection of his love being expressed in us. God has become our example. He is our example. And that is why we now love, because he teaches and persuades us by his spirit to love. However we view it, love finds its origin in God. And because he is the author of love, he is also the author of assurance. Believers... You know, we can never forget how this love came into our lives because he first loved us. That's the words that explain the presence and operation of this love in our lives. Just think about the, uh, the Apostle Peter after his denials of our Lord. I mean, if there's anybody that could have an experience in his life of having a lack of assurance, I think it could be Peter, <laughs> denied his very Lord at a crucial time, Jesus on trial. And yet, after Jesus' resurrection, he meets up with Peter and the other disciples on the Sea of Galilee on the shore there when they're having breakfast. And he takes Peter and asks him three times, do you love me? And uh, it's at that point that Jesus is restoring him to be prepared for a future ministry. And again, just think about that as compared to our lives when we may doubt our assurance and when we fail the Lord, when we sin. You know, am, can I have that assurance? Yes, because it's covered in the sacrifice of our Lord. We have His Spirit. We can have that confidence. And that's why John says in 1 John 5.13, I think probably the key verse in 1 John, these things I have written to you who believe in the name that is who he is, the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
we have the basis and benefits of our assurance because he saved us with his redeeming love. It started with him and not us. So we, we can trust in him. And I was just thinking about a friend of ours who's going through just a, a trial right now with cancer. And uh, because of the treatment that's taking place uh, in his life, the chemotherapy, you know, there's times when it's, it's tough for him and where he, he knows, you know, I'm sinning in my reactions to family members and those who love me. And what he keeps coming back to is, but I know it's God's grace in my life that he has forgiven me and I ask for his forgiveness. And I have to keep holding on to that when I sin, even in, during these difficult times. That's a demonstration of true faith. And he has that assurance, even though at times it's difficult, even when he sees his own responses from his own heart. Uh, Pastor John, in his commentary on First John here, says at the end of this, Because this love so clearly comes from him, those who love like him can be assured that he is their father. And we can can have that assurance. It's it's from him. And so just remember those, the basis of our faith and the benefits that come from that. And we have that assurance because of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you had the Apostle John write this letter that we can know that we have eternal life and we can know that you abide in us and we abide in you. And what a miracle it is of that relationship that we can have because of you, because you loved us. You were and are the initiator. Thank you for saving us, and thank you for giving us that confidence and trust in you. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here today that may not have that assurance of faith and maybe examining their own hearts. Maybe they aren't in you, and they've just heard the gospel their whole lives but have never actually trusted in you. I pray that they would search the scriptures out, talk with those of us that can help them answer that question. And I pray for those also who are believers, but when they see the struggles of sin in their lives, sometimes they they sin, but that they would ask forgiveness quickly, repent, and seek to be more like you, to grow in their confidence and in their Um, assurance that they are saved. And we can be assured because of what you've done for us. And we can have that confidence. We also pray, Lord, again for Pastor Brian and Anita and their family as we think of them today. And I know uh, they are trusting in you as well. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.